0: As we enter the fourth week of Advent, we will join Christians all over the world in lighting a candle to remind us of the first coming of Jesus, the light of the world, 2,000 years ago, and the second coming of Jesus that we still wait for. We light the fourth candle in love. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, Amen. Would you stand with me as I read the scripture for this morning, 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us, and if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. You may be seated.
1: Well, thank you, Vivian. Um, going to get to the heart of the matter here. Are you worthy of love? Are you lovable? Lovely? Could anyone love you? Beyond that, not just as a hypothetical, are, do you have the capacity to be loved, but are you actually genuinely loved by anyone? Um, everyone is looking for love Oh, Everyone is looking for love Everyone desires to be loved And despair kicks in when we don't have love When we come to believe that we are unlovable So much of our lives are organ- organized Whether consciously or subconsciously Around this pursuit of love And or sometimes to prove our actual loveliness Which is wrapped up in our dignity and our value Some religions, including some Christian theology, foregrounds the doctrine of, especially for Christians, but other religions have similar or overlapping concepts. But some Christian theology foregrounds the doctrine of sin or depravity to the point where you get something that is sometimes called worm theology, which basically says humans are so awful and so unlovable and so disgusting like a worm that God just, he just has to hold his nose to come to pursue us or whatever else. Does God hate you? Maybe a little bit better, does God tolerate you? American culture, it seems to me, basically affirms that everyone is intrinsically worthy of love until they cross a particular line, usually not defined until it's too late, at which point their dignity is irrevocably removed and along with it, their ability to be loved. Our culture's view is so flimsy and so cheap. Uh, Family of origin, what does that tell you about your ability to be loved? By how we receive and give love in our families or or don't receive love, especially, we're often shaped in understanding how love works, what it is, whether or not we are uh, worthy of it or not. So I ask it again, are you worthy of love? You can't talk about Advent or Christmas or the second coming without talking about love because it's so intrinsic to the character of God and it's one of the key central themes and ideas that kind of undergirds the entire story that he's telling, not just in the Bible, the biblical narrative, but of of redemptive history. The history of the universe itself is wrapped up in the question. This question, the question of love. And so again, we, we, we've been harping on this, but I want you to see that, that discussing love at Advent, one of the four kind of traditional themes that most church traditions will will grab onto, it, it isn't meant to be just cute or like, ah, it's, that's nice, that's lovely, that's, you know, what a, what a warm kind of thing. Uh, certainly we want it to warm your heart, but at the end of the day, this is not some kind of little cutesy bonus. The question of love, what is it? Are you worthy of it? How do you get it? Do you already have it? If not, why not? If, all of this is wrapped up in our deepest longings and needs as creatures, the way God designed us to be. And so as we, as we enter into the fourth week of Advent, I just want to say again, whatever it means for you, maybe just praying silently in your seat wherever you are, ask God to help this consideration of the love of God and his love towards people and our love for one another to move beyond just the simple sort of pat discussions and ideas that we all carry and to let it actually penetrate deep down into your heart in the deepest places. Actually, I'm going to pray that right now for all of us and then we'll jump in. Father, love is a word often used, often used, often celebrated, often discussed, often longed for, and for good reason, Lord. This scripture is going to tell us that you are love. God is love. But, Lord, we, we, we both twist it and mutate it and forget about it. Uh, we, we do everything to it, Lord, it seems, except really get a clear-eyed understanding of it and really let it transform and change us the way it's meant to. So, Lord, we pray um, as we together come under this, this passage from, from the book of 1 John, that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would let this teaching sink deeply into our hearts that it would not just float overhead, Lord, but that you would do something deep and powerful and mighty within us as your word goes out. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the, the book of 1 John is super cyclical, and some of you that have been here since the beginning of Door of Hope Northeast, you'll probably remember, uh, the very first sermon series we did was through 1 John, and uh, most of, all of that, I believe, was over, like, YouTube videos whenever we were distanced because of the pandemic. And I actually went back and listened to my old teaching on this passage, and it was just full of cringe for me. I just, it's so, oh, I had nearly forgotten the pain of preaching these boring sermons into my phone. Boring for me and boring for you. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, we were discussing the scriptures, and that's good. And uh, anytime the word goes out, it's powerful. But uh, we, we went through the book of First John, and as we did, we discussed this passage, and uh, we went through it verse by verse. If you're interested in, in revisiting that, I don't recommend it necessarily, but you're welcome to. It's available on the internet. Um, but for today, we're not, we're not going to take this passage just verse by verse again. I, I just want to basically look at it, um, just basically pull out four, four themes related to love that we see in this passage that are closely connected to the heart of this, um, but but I want to I look at four things. I want to look at God's love for God, God's love for the world, God's love for you, whoever you are, and your love for your neighbors and for God. So that's where we're going. This passage has profound things to say about all of these, as does this whole book. This whole book kind of cyclically repeats these themes over and over again. But chapter four here, where we're hunkering down, it kind of is the climax of the book where he's pulling all these ideas back together and just reasserting them so powerfully and, and beautifully, I think. So that's where we camp today. The first angle we want to pull from this is on God's love for God, and and verses seven and eight, the first two verses Vivian read, lay this out for us. I'll just read these two verses again. It says, "Beloved, let us love one another," and you'll see that's the theme here. That's what connects this whole thing. It starts with love one another, and it ends with one another. And what's love one another? And what happens in the middle is the sort of Rationale and power and justification and why and how and where does this capacity for love come from is all in the middle So he says let us love one another. That's what John is after he, he he's probably recognizing some lack of love in the communities He's writing to and he's trying to call them back to this Remember we just talked about this in mark a few weeks ago The central command of Jesus and of the whole Bible is to love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself so John's calling them back to this Let us love one another Four. Love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because, listen to this one, God is love. So I'm going to take these two phrases in turn. God is love and love is from God. And just, just I don't know how much we've contemplated that. You know, when you, when you hear God is love, I feel like that's one of the most popular Bible verses to quote because usually we just get to kind of... At the same way we define love so nebulously in our culture, it kind of means whatever you want it to mean, depending on your mood or whatever. Uh, we, we like to apply that to God, too. Yeah, God is love, so it means he's exactly this or that or whatever. But let's, let's pick that apart for a second. God is love. John's telling us that, that, that love is such a fundamental characteristic of our God that you can just call him love. God is love. Love is such a fundamental feature to him that this is an appropriate phrase to say. And one of the most powerful things I've ever read on this came from the book Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Some of us did a book club on this like a, a year or two ago. Um, but listen to this. He, he's basically saying there's, there's two fundamental ways people can conceptualize God. And depending on how you start and whether or not you start where the Bible starts, of course, um, you end up in these very very different places for surprising reasons. Here's, here's the first one he says He says one way to think about God is that he fundamentally is that he's the uncaused cause and This is like the God of the philosopher a lot of philosophers talk about God this way You know we, we, we first think of him as the sort of beginning of all reality He's the one thing that was uncaused he caused everything else. So okay. I'll read the quote now. He's the uncaused cause That's who he is God is essentially the creator the one in charge. It all sounds very reasonable and unobjectionable, but if I do start there with that as my basic view of God, I will find every inch of my Christianity covered and wasted by the nastiest toxic fallout. First of all, if God's very identity is to be the creator, the ruler, then he needs a creation to rule in order to be who he is. For all his cosmic power then, this God turns out to be pitifully weak. He needs us. Pause that quote there. Saying if you start with a basic conception of God as he's ruler, he's powerful, he's creator, he's the uncaused cause, any of those things, you start with this God who who fundamentally needs his creation to get his basic identity, right? He's incomplete until he has something to actually rule over. And if he needs us, if he needs to rule over us, then we have some kind of strange power over him, A, and B, we might not like that relationship that we have to him. He uses that to contrast what he says is the biblical basic starting place for thinking about God, and I'll read that now. The other way to think about God is lamplit and evenly paved. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is, in fact, the way It's a lane that ends happily in a very different place with a very different sort of God. How? Well, just the fact that Jesus is the son really says it all. Being a son means he has a father. The God he reveals is first and foremost a father. Perhaps the way to appreciate this best is to ask what God was doing before creation. Have you ever asked that question? What's God up to before creation? you believe he's eternal, which I hope, hope you do, what was he doing? What was he doing? Jesus gives us an answer, Michael Reeves points out. <clears throat> he says, now to the followers of the other path, that's an absurd, impossible question to answer. Their wittiest theologians reply with the put down. What was God doing before creation? Making hell for those cheeky enough to ask such questions. But on the lane, it's an easy question to answer. Jesus tells us explicitly in John 17, 24, Father, he says, you loved me before the creation of the world. And that is the God revealed by Jesus Christ. Before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, before anything else, this God was a father loving his son. Have you thought about that? Doctrine of the Trinity, you start tracing this out we, we, we see that, although it's mysterious Although it's confusing, although we can easily like, Lose our bearings when we think about the Trinity it is a, It's a hard thing to understand It's full of mystery, we will never fully Understand it, the side of the new creation If we even will then, I'm not sure But here's, here's the idea God, one God Eternally existent as these three Persons, as Father, Son, and Spirit That means he has always Existed in loving relationship Within himself Before he made a single thing outside of himself, there was this love relationship within himself between these persons that make up the Trinity. This love, then, informs all of his other attributes. And we're not saying he's not the first cause, he was. We're not saying he's not the creator or the ruler or the king, whatever else. All those, of course, are things the Bible teaches. But what Reeves wants us to see is that fundamentally in in his core, if you you try to find that, like, what, what, what should I define as the key core essence of God that sort of lends light to all the other pieces, he would say it's love. In the words of John, God is love. He always has been. Even before there was another person in existence to love, he has always loved with the love of a father towards the son. Isn't that beautiful? So if that's just who he is naturally and he chooses to create, his relationship isn't then fundamentally that of sort of landlord to tenant or something like that. It's as this father all the way down who creates in order to love and to bless more and to give up more of himself and to say, I have things to show you, humanity. I've made a beautiful world for you to exist in. I want you to experience these relationships between yourselves and between me and between this world I've created. This is so good. It's just him overflowing with love fundamentally he is love. He is a loving father. Oh, I love that. That is beautiful. So God is love. I think that's one really helpful way to think about that sentence. There's the other one that John mentioned. Love is from God. And I think this makes more sense now having considered that. Okay, if God is love and love existed before anything was created, I think we can infer from what John's saying is that love exists at all because it flows out of him. He has wired his creatures, you, you, whoever you are, you have been wired to desire love and to give love because that's who he is. He's made you in his image. He's made you in his image. You share this with him by design. He created everything in love. The fact that he created all was because he desired to share himself with these creatures that he's he's made It, it love was the motivation for creation he pursues people in love he blesses people in love he created people to mirror his love and their love whatever value love has in this world is there because he put it there love is from God and of course love gets twisted love gets perverted love gets violated love gets ignored but every place where love is genuinely found, if you could trace its origins, you would find God back there. Every glimpse of genuine love you've ever experienced from a parent, from a spouse, from a friend, you name it. God is behind that. He's the one that sustains that, lends meaning to that. And by the way, if if the Christian God does not exist, certainly if it's a materialist universe where just matter banging around, then love is nothing more than neuroelectric chemicals zapping around in our brains, just the latest domino of a, you know, however many billion long domino game of deterministic matter banging around. And it can feel really amazing still to be in love or whatever, but fundamentally you have to say like the nihilists, like there's no meaning there. There's no meaning there. Thank God it's not the case. God exists, and he is love, and love is from him. So we'll stop there. God's love for God is the fundamental point out of which all other loves flow, and praise God that it is that way. Second, God's love for the world. So this verse goes on, verses, or this Section goes on, verses 9 and 10. In this love of God, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So it, 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 it appeared among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. If you read on to verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Okay, now we're getting Christmassy here. Now we're getting Christmassy. What we're told here is that the Christmas story at the heart of it represents the love of God. I hope that's not a surprise to you, but God has had this eternal plan uh, for all time to, to create. He knew there was, you know, this is all mysterious too, but he knew there was going to be a fall. He knew He was gonna. it was going to cost him cost him gravely to actually save and redeem his people to secure his eternity with them into the future. So from the time of creation forth, he knew it was going to entail his son that he's loved from eternity past going to the cross to die. And God, in his gracious generosity, said, yes, that's a price I'm willing to pay. I'm willing to pay the price of my eternal son. Jesus' the son says, I am willing to pay the price of laying down my life, breaking this eternal fellowship I've had with my father laying down the priceless, I mean, I, I mean, absolutely incalculable value of the life of the Son of God for people, for the world. So the Christ, that plan has always been in place. It wasn't like in, uh, invented 10 minutes before, you know, the incarnation or whatever. This has always been God's plan. And the day came in his providence where he said, okay, it's happening. And you've heard the story. The angels appear to Mary and to Joseph and to all these other characters as well. The announcements are made. We find out that she, Mary's actually carrying the Son of God inside of her. We have the birth story uh, and, and on and on and on. This was all an expression of the love of God. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live. Not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. So, the Bible does affirm this doctrine of total depravity. Like, everyone's full of sin. You're full of sin. I'm full of sin. When you have children, you, it becomes evident very early on. <laughs> like They're not capable of much rational thought, but they're very capable of sin. <laughs> it's, it seems it's, it's just there. It's just there, this, uh, this, this rebellious spirit. And um, there's a price to be paid for that. Justice must be done. Evil must be dealt with. From its smallest seedling forms to the horrific atrocities that come when it's allowed to fully bloom. God, Because God is good, he does not just turn a blind eye. He says, I must do something about that because I love people and I love this world. I can't just turn a blind eye. He's not cruel in that way. And our sin does earn us separation from God. It does earn us judgment. It does earn us uh, the inability to come to him apart from his work to bring us to him. But that does not mean, hear me, that's all true. That does not mean God does not still love you. That does not mean that God does not still love you. Listen to these verses uh, from Romans. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Even mired in our sin, even with no way to claw ourselves back to him, even with no way to paper over the messes that we've made of our own lives and in the lives of others, even even the most horrible atrocities anyone in this room or anyone outside of this room has committed, despite all of that, in light of all of that, God still says, you are worth the sending of the eternal Son of God to die in your place. You are worth everything. There's no higher price to pay. There is no higher price to pay. The Christmas story is the turning point from where God, where God enters his people's story in this new way all because of this love and every bit of indignity he suffered from conception and indignity started immediately with Mary's pregnancy. We've talked about that. The reputational smearing and the shame that would have come with a, evidently like this conception out of wedlock and so on and so forth. Up through the story itself where Jesus is born and hum- like there's, no, there's no place at the end so he's in with the animals and the hay and it's, it's, just, it's like no place fit for a king, certainly not the eternal king of the universe. Living an, a, a human life at this particular time and place under the oppression of the Roman empire on Israel all the way up through of course his ministry that we've been reading about in the Gospel of Corinth and Mark now for two years. Uh, where he's constantly dismissed, he's challenged, he's spit upon, and ultimately he's gonna be beaten, crucified as a criminal, tortured, and killed. And all of that, all of that was not done begrudgingly. It was not done because, well, I guess I just have to do this, well, I don't know, he loves you, he loves the world. He was not content to let that distance remain, but he had to come close and he was willing to do everything necessary to bear all of that on his back to make sure the mission was accomplished. Christmas story, the entire life and ministry of Jesus up through the cross and resurrection and ascension and sending of the Spirit and eventual return is just the outflow of his love for the world. So God has love for God, God has love for the world. Number three, God has love for you, therefore. Verse 15 and 16 says this, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So what he's saying here is that all that we've said, all in this previous movement, it applies not just to the world in general. You might be tempted to think some of you like, oh, well, that sounds nice and good for like my really uh, respectable and lovable person that's sitting next to me or my neighbor or my mom or my kid or my friend or someone who's way more worthy of these things than me. This would say no. Whoever, whoever, without discrimination, without distinction, confesses that Jesus is the Son, God will come abide in him and he in God. Whoever you are, I believe you can rest confidently in the truth that God loves you. In fact, I'll say it again, every good thing that you've ever encountered, if the Bible is true, I submit to you it is, what it's claiming is that every good thing you've ever encountered in this life flows from His love and is a signpost pointing toward it. Every moment of genuine joy you've ever experienced is not just a random happenstance of history, it's the gracious kindness of a God who wants to bless you. Oh, man. So the question is, have you received this love? Once you hear of it, 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 there's something we have to do for it to apply to us, for us to fall on the right side of this, to let the, the work that Jesus has accomplished actually be for you and for me. And if you haven't received it, will you receive it? Will you accept it? He gives us three words here I just want to highlight in response. He says, believe. Yeah. believe." We have come to know and to believe. Those are more or less synonymous. To know and to believe or to trust or to have faith, however you want to term it, in this love. What do you do about this God who's just showering love on you? Even your breaths you're taking right now are evidence of his love for you. What do you do about that love? He just says believe it. (laughs) That's it, man. Just believe it. Just receive it. Acknowledge it. He then says, confess. That's the natural outflow. Speak it, declare it. In Romans 10:9, it makes the same connection. Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Same relationship is here. Believe and confess. Speak it out. Declare it. And then there's a third word here. He says, abide says, abide. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God. Abide just means to remain or to stay, to make your home within. To stay in that love, to remain close to it, to remind yourself of it, to let it begin to work in you and flow through you and become a vehicle and a channel for it. Make your home in His love and all that that implies. God loves God, God loves the world God loves you he says just grab a hold of it Then there's a fourth one And this has to do with your love For God and the world He returns to some ideas at the end of this passage That he's already laid down That's John's style in this book But he says again We love because he first loved Our capacity to love is Totally rooted in his prior love of us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. He said that same thing. We we skipped over it, but back in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has, this is so profound, listen to this, no one has ever seen God. The unmediated, just direct and clear face of God. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God, but what he's, he's, what he's saying here is, but if we love, if we abide in his love, if we receive his love and then abide in it and then give it out to others, we get this picture of him. We see something about him that we would not see otherwise. So the, the result of all this stuff, of God's love poured out onto the world, and then us receiving it and abiding in it and then turning around is to let that love make its home in us, and, and, and once it... Once we are in it, and it is in us, it becomes to the point where the natural result is that love spilling out for those all around us. We become, in our own small ways, the hands and feet of God. We become his presence in this world, the presence of his love in this world. Not exclusively, he can act directly all he wants to, and I trust that he does. But in a very real way, we become his hands and feet, his love through us, we're his ambassador. It's termed so many different ways throughout the scripture. And this is an inescapable part of what it means to be the body of Christ. That's what the church is called. We are his body, loving on his behalf here and now in this world. So if we've received his love, his self-giving, unselfish, others' blessing, like sacrificial love, that motivates us, it changes us, it stirs something up in us where we begin to give the same way. As a shadow, you know, in fits and starts, of course. But we become those who have the self-giving, unselfish, others-blessing love as well. That's the end point of all of this. And John struggles to conceive of anyone who's actually received the love of God for whom this does not actually become reality. This is the natural course of things, according to him. Lately, my three-year-old has recently been saying... He said it a lot in the last month. It's very interesting. He's just been saying, Dad, and it's not like accusatory or anything. In fact, I'm not even sure that he knows that I'm a pastor, so I don't think he's like trying to twist a knife or something. But he's been saying, Dad, I've never seen God. Just keeps saying, Dad. Like randomly, he'll be in the car and he'll be like, Dad, I've never seen God. So we talk about God and like <laughs> God loves you and God loves me and trying to follow God and pray to God, all this stuff. Dad, I've never seen God. He just kind of it's just kind of like if we were talking about a cousin or something all the time, and it was like, you know, I've never seen cousin Billy. <laughs> it's very sweet and very innocent. He just states it declaratively. And what this passage says, he's in good company. I say the same thing. I say, Ezra, I've never seen God either. <laughs> I've never seen him. In fact, no one has. But one day we will we will see him face to face. Because of what Jesus has done on our behalf and because of his prior love securing all of this and bringing us in, rounding us up, pulling us home, we will see him face to face. But in the here and now, he's, I'm with him. I've never seen God. But my hope is that he, my son, my three-year-old son, will get a glimpse of God in me and in our family and in you, our church family, even right now, is he downstairs or did he weasel his way back up? Okay, he's still downstairs. Right now, as these like, lovely volunteers are serving him and caring for him and reading the scriptures to him and praying over him, like my hope and desire is that one day when he gets a little bit older, and we're talking about this passage, he will make the connection. I have tasted the love of God through this people. He needs that. I need that. You need that. That's the end point of receiving this love of God. Amen? Door of Hope Northeast. Love. It's beautiful. God is love. Love is from God. God so loved the world and God loves you, therefore. Receive that love. Become a channel for it, a vehicle for it. Become the hands and feet of that love by his power, by his spirit, by his enablement, because we cannot do that on ourselves, by ourselves. I hope that's clear. But in his grace, he'll do it in us. He'll do it in us if we keep coming back to him. Amen? Amen? Let's pray.